help to finish the building this year. We pray for uh, the, the building for our seminary, the Institute of Pastoral and Theological Training. We're, we're thankful for the students, for the staff, and we pray for faithfulness. For Lux and Tenebris, the Lumides organization, to, to help raise support for pastors in Nigeria seeking theological training. God, we pray and ask that you would give support for the churches and for the people there. Would you show yourself strong? Lord, we love you. And for those who can't be here with us today, whether they're traveling or they're sick, we pray that you would minister to them wherever they are. And now as we turn to your word, would you help us? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and join me in the book of Acts this morning. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. If you're using the, the blue ESV Bibles that are scattered in the seat backs out in front of you, you can find our text on page 913. The title of our sermon is An Earnest Prayer, and the key words for our worshipers and training are sovereign, boldness, and speak. So if you've got kids and they want to have a sheet of paper or something, a little notebook, they can take notes and just make a little tally mark anytime they hear those words to help keep them focused. So Acts chapter 4. The most heinous, evil act in all history was committed about 2,000 years ago in the first century A.D. when the religious leaders in Jerusalem conspired together with the Roman government to murder Jesus of Nazareth. And yet, it was also, from a different vantage point, the most futile act in all of history. For in Acts 2, 24, Luke records these words for us taken from Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. He said, God raised Jesus up Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter then immediately quotes Psalm 16 to prove this claim that the resurrection of Christ was inevitable given David's prophesying about it a thousand years beforehand. Last week we saw in Peter's quotation of Psalm 118 verse 22 before the Sanhedrin He'd been arrested for healing a man at the temple. Well, before the Sanhedrin, he quotes Psalm 118 and notes that the resurrection of Christ, in the resurrection of Christ, those who had rejected him, i.e. murdered him, they were utterly shamed since he had been given the place of pride and preeminence by God. And in our text this morning, we're going to see yet another Old Testament expectation concerning the Messiah, reflected in the prayer meeting of the disciples after Peter and John are released from jail, which is where we pick up the story again this week. Last week, we saw them before the council, and we saw their boldness and their witness to the resurrected Christ. Well, today we find them in the midst of the church praying. And I want to read these verses now, verses 23 through 31 of Acts chapter 4. And then I'll I'll outline it and then we'll get to work. 
Luke writes, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. It, it may not be uh, exceedingly obvious to you. Uh, it, it, it may be, but it may not be. But this is an exceptionally fitting text to preach on Easter Sunday. And if it's not clear to you, I do pray that by the time we're done, it will be why we are preaching this text on this Sunday. Normally, we work through books of the Bible. We're going through Acts right now. Occasionally, on Sunday, we might pause and preach something else, something specific to the resurrection. And believe it or not, this text is all about the resurrection. So let me outline it, and then we'll get to work, and hopefully what I just said will make sense to you by the time we're done. So in the first verses of verses 23 through 30, we're going to see um, this prayer that the disciples make to the Lord after Peter and John's release. We're going to examine that prayer and see several things. So that's the first main section of the sermon. We're going to look at the prayer. And then in verse 31, we're going to look at the Lord's answer to that prayer. So look with me in the first place in verses 23 through 30 where we see the prayer of the apostles. Now the first thing to note here about this prayer is the theology of the disciples that undergirds this prayer. And And it lovingly smacks us in the face from the opening words. Notice. To whom do they address this prayer? But to the sovereign Lord. Peter and John had just been dragged before and threatened by many so-called sovereign lords. Lowercase s, lowercase l, of course. These sovereign lords could have, of course, killed them. They had just killed Jesus a few months prior. But Peter and John had resisted them with valor. They refused to give in to their noxious threats. But now, having been released, returning to their friends, and joining together in prayer, they are speaking to the sovereign Lord of the world who holds their lives and all lives in His hands. And despite their courage to face the threat the day before, they, they needed help. They needed a helping hand from their Master And so the disciples here, prior to making any request of God, though, 
They fill their minds with His sovereignty, and then they connect His sovereignty in this prayer with three things. With creation, with revelation, and with redemption. We'll look at these briefly. First, in the prayer, note how they, they call God the Creator. They say that He is the one who has made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them. In other words, in this prayer, reflecting on God's sovereignty, before they ask Him anything, they recall that God holds ultimate power over all things, including the authorities who had arrested them and threatened Peter and John because, uh, because of this man that they had healed. And so they recall God's sovereignty over these things, over them, everything else in the world. And so they set God's sovereignty in their hearts on display in creation. But secondly, we see not only has God made the world, but He has revealed Himself to the world. God has spoken to the world. In particular here, they quote Psalm 2, and what do they say about it? But they confess that God had spoken through David. David, the second king of Israel, who lived about a thousand years prior to Jesus, they say that God spoke through David by the Holy Spirit. And so God's sovereignty is not only on display in His creative act of making the world, but it's on display in His ability to speak to the world through Scripture. But the prayer continues. Third, not only has God made the world, Not only has He spoken to the world, but He has wrought redemption in the world. Now to understand this claim, the first two are probably very obvious. But to understand this, we need to unpack Psalm 2 a little bit here. Which is what they quote in verse, uh, well really verses 25 and 26. Um, You don't have to turn to Psalm 2, but if you'd like, you can um, write sort of in the for the middle of the Old Testament. Psalm 2, the, the opening words of Psalm 2 recorded for us here, uh, Psalm 2 is an overtly messianic psalm. It is overtly about God's Messiah. Psalm 2 is likely composed as a liturgy for the coronation ceremony of a future Davidic king in Jerusalem. It's a powerful word of comfort to God's people which declares that despite the evil and the rebellion in the world, the Lord reigns and He will subject all nations to His anointed King. So I'm not going to read the psalm, but I do want to summarize it for you here. And the psalm divides it into three major sections. In verses 1-3, through Verses 1-3 through present godless nations of the world living in rebellion against God, seeking to overthrow His anointed King. Verses 4-9 through assert, however, that God laughs at the futility of the nation's rebellion, since He has established His King, His own Son, and given it to Him to rule over them. And in their rebellion, he, uh, He says, they will be broken to pieces. And then in verses 10 through 12, they hold out the offer of redemption. Kiss the Son. We read this in our call to worship this morning. Kiss the Son and find refuge in Him because destruction awaits those who would resist Him. So in quoting this psalm, in quoting Psalm 2, 
Peter and friends explicitly name Jesus as the Lord's anointed of the psalm. He is the Lord's anointed against whom the nations had conspired. Because we see this in verse 27. They say, we saw Herod and Pilate. We saw the Gentiles. We saw the peoples of Israel all work together against the Lord Jesus. But then they say something that likely strikes us with surprise. They say those wicked, evil people did exactly what God's hand and His plan had predestined to take place. Words that are not easy to grapple with. What does it mean that they did an evil act which was apparently the exact thing that God had predestined to take place? Well, you can think of it like this, and it helps us to think about Psalm 2 and God's response in Psalm 2 to the mocking, rebelling nations. Psalm 2 can mock the nations rebelling against God and His King as an ill-fated attempt to cast off His sovereignty precisely because, as is evident in this prayer here, the rebellion of the nations against God's anointed fell right into line with God's sovereign decree and it would result in nothing but crushing judgment from God through His anointed King over those in rebellion. But it would also result in blessing to those who take refuge in this King. So where's the resurrection in all this? We need to ask, How do we get all the way from the rebellion against God's King in Psalm 2, which is quoted here, Psalm 2, 1 and 2. How do we get from there all the way to the rule of God's King over those nations with the rod of iron in verses 8 and 9? And the the blessing that King extends to those who take refuge in Him in verses 10 through 12. Well, this is exactly where the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus come in to play. You see, Acts 4, 23-31 may not mention the resurrection, but it absolutely presupposes it. Without the resurrection, the prayer of the disciples in Acts 4 doesn't make any sense. Now one principle that it's important to have in mind here is that when the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament, they often quote only a part of it, but they have the entirety of the psalm or the, the, of the Old Testament passage in mind. Right? So Psalm 2, there's only a small portion of Psalm 2 quoted in Acts 4, but it's clear that the, the entirety of the psalm is, is in mind here because the quotation in this prayer, as they fill their hearts with the thought of God's sovereignty, it's to help them remember, and Luke records it for us, to help us to see that this rebellion only fulfilled the ultimate plan of God which he had established to rescue his king from death and to crown him as the sovereign Lord over all nations. And so we must understand Psalm 2 and therefore this prayer to have the resurrection in mind. Again, back in Psalm 2, there's a turning point in the psalm. Where's the turning point? Again, from the the colluding nations to the conquering king, well, it's in verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 2. 
The nations rage, we're told, but it says God has set his king on his holy hill. And then he says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is resurrection language. According to the Apostle Paul, anyway. Paul quotes from Psalm 2 in Acts 13. And he connects it directly to the resurrection. This is what Paul says in Acts 13. He says, We bring you the good news of what God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it was written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. So according to Paul, the anointed one in Psalm 2 is God's son, precisely in that though he was rejected by man, he is set and established on God's hill, i.e. raised from the dead and exalted to God's right hand. Psalm 2 is an enthronement ceremony. Now, If you're not convinced, consider what we see in uh, three other psalms. Three psalms that are back to back to back. Psalms 22, 23, and 24. Psalm 22 offers a long prophetic description of the death of God's anointed one. Beginning with the famous cry of dereliction, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes that psalm. He quotes Psalm 22, 1, while he's hanging on the cross, applying it to himself. The next psalm, Psalm 23, then anticipates the resurrection. You surely all know Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. But in that psalm, we see God shepherd his king through the valley of what? The shadow of death. And he provides him on the other side of this valley with eternal life. And then in Psalm 24, we see the, resur- uh, the, the ascension, rather, and the exaltation of Messiah expected. We have the question, who shall ascend what? The hill of the Lord and stand in His holy place. The one with clean hands and a pure heart. And so the conclusion of Psalm 24 is, let the King of glory come in. So Paul quotes Psalm 2 in Acts 13. And he views the resurrection of Jesus as Jesus' enthronement. And the disciples, they quote Psalm 2 in Acts 4. And they view the opposition to Jesus by the confederation of nations as having been a mere precursor to the coming resurrection and the ascension anticipated in the rest of the psalm. Which at that point when they're praying had already occurred and had established Jesus as the ruler of the whole universe. So here it is. The disciples of the Lord Jesus, upon the release of Peter and John from jail, they set their hearts on God's sovereignty and they recall that God created the world, that He revealed Himself to the world, And on the basis of Jesus' resurrection from the dead and ascension to the right hand of God, they recall that He offers redemption, rescue, and refuge to this world. In the words of Psalm 2, God has set His King on His holy hill, and He has given Him the nations as His inheritance. That He would protect those who seek refuge in Him 
and he would break to pieces those who resist him. And so that's in their minds, and therefore they ask this God for help. They ask the Lord to look upon the threats of the rulers, and then they ask to grant the disciples boldness to continue to speak his word while Jesus continues to heal and work wonders and signs in the earth. I don't know about you, but that is not at all what I would have expected them to pray. Right? Be honest for a minute here. In your own heart, think about it. You just put yourself in their, in their shoes. You've just been released from jail for proclaiming the resurrection in Jesus, which is what we see in Acts uh, 4, the beginning of Acts 4. You then go back to your friends and you offer the prayer to the sovereign Lord whose king is going to crush the heathen nations who rebelled against him. And what do they pray? They don't pray, Lord, wipe them out. One commentator notes, their demand is not now for miracles of vengeance and destruction, such as fire from heaven, but for miracles of mercy. Now, I don't think it would have been wrong for them to have asked God to do that. The very psalm they just quoted, as I just said, expected the enthroned Davidic king to break the rebelling nations to pieces with a rod of iron. But the fact that they don't pray for that here is instructive for us. They don't even ask for deliverance from persecution, but they merely ask for boldness to continue on with the mission despite the presence of persecution. Now there's a time and a place for all kinds of prayers. This was a time for a prayer for boldness. They had been given a mission by Jesus. Take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he had been clear there would be opposition to his kingdom from the, by the kingdom of man. And so they pray for boldness to speak the truth. Right, the very thing they had been charged by the Sanhedrin to not to stop doing, to speak in Jesus' name, they, they, they come to the sovereign Lord and they confess their need before him that they need resources to carry out the mission. They need boldness. And so that's the prayer. That's what they asked. The Sanhedrin had charged them not to speak in Jesus' name anymore. A direct contradiction to Jesus' charge that he had given them in Acts 1.8 when he said, Be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so they fill their hearts with Scripture. They call to mind these truths about God that he made all of the world, that He has revealed Himself in the Scriptures and that He offers redemption to the world, to those who seek Him. And then they ask this gracious and sovereign God to help them carry out the mission even in the face of persecution. Look with me then in the second place at verse 31 where we see the Lord's answer. We are given a brief but powerful word from the pen of Luke. He says, When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. I read a line about this verse earlier this week that I really like. The line says, The house was shaken, but the disciples were unshaken. God immediately, obviously, and powerfully answered this prayer. Now there's much that we could take away from this verse, but I want to focus our gaze here on one question. Do you believe that God answers prayer? You know, you may, we pray a lot perhaps, and it's not always as obvious, as immediate and clear when God answers our prayers. I've never been in a house praying and all of a sudden the the roof and walls began to totter and shake. But Jesus tells us to ask. Jesus tells us to seek and to knock. And he says that if you do that, you will receive. You will find and it will be open to you. James says in his epistle that we, we don't have because we don't ask. Or maybe we do ask, but we ask wrongly because we're only asking for things in the pursuit of our own passions. And so, it isn't always as cut and dried as what happens here, but it is an important question for each of us here this morning. Do you believe that God answers prayer? The Bible is, is emphatic. God does answer prayer. It may not always be in the exact way that you want, or at the exact time that you want, but He, he does answer prayer. Prayer. Peter and John had been arrested. Their, their lives had been threatened. They had been told to shut up or else. And so they pray for boldness to continue speaking God's word. And that is exactly what they get. Boldness. They continued to speak with boldness. right On the basis of the sovereignty of God in creation, revelation, and redemption, the disciples prayed for boldness to keep speaking, to continue proclaiming the kingdom of God despite the growing opposition that they faced. And and if you don't know the rest of Acts, the opposition only grows more and more fierce. We're, We're reaching a boiling point when we get to Acts 7. Like the Lord and His anointed, capital A, His anointed ones here, lowercase a, like their Messiah, face opposition. And they pray, as we noted earlier, not for God to wipe out their enemies, but to give them help to remain faithful to their cause. And He does. So I'd like to make a few points of application here and then we'll be done. What do we... What, what do we take away from, from this psalm, or this prayer, which quotes a psalm? The first is for anyone here today who remains in rebellion against God and His anointed. You see, the, the nations conspired against Jesus in the first century, but 
that still happens today. Jesus is still hated by many and is still conquering his enemies. And so I just want to say to you, if if you are here today living in unbelief, living in rejection of God, living in rebellion against Jesus Christ, my friend, you are living a life of utter foolishness and folly. There is no getting over and around the rule and the reign of God through His Messiah, Jesus. You know, as a, as a fellow sinner, I know the temptation well to want to be your own king or queen. To be your own boss. To submit to no one else. To live your life as you see fit. You know, the Proverbs tell us that there's a way that seems right to a man. But its end is destruction. And so if you're living outside of Christ, then you're heading for destruction. If you've set yourself against God and against His anointed, that will result in nothing but judgment and condemnation for you. God has made the world. He has every right to tell you and me what to do. And when we refuse to submit ourselves to Him, we invite His just wrath upon our heads. Think about how Psalm 2 ends. It's what we, again, we quoted this in the call to worship. Take heed, friends, whether you're a king or not. Be wise and be warned. God has given Jesus the nations as His inheritance. And there are therefore only two radically different outcomes for all the inhabitants of earth. All of us will either be broken to pieces or be brought into the fortress of God's Son. Psalm 2 tells us, kiss the Son. So would you embrace the Lord's anointed and find refuge in Him? Refuge, namely, from the wrath of God that is coming upon the world for sin? Last word here on this. If, if you aren't sure what to do, if you don't know what that means or what that looks like, what the, the next steps are, I'd be happy to talk with you after the service this week, this month. Find me. Find an elder here. We'd be li- we'd, we would be delighted to tell you more. But a second application here is for all of us who, who have been won by this gracious King. And it's back to the question about prayer. Do you pray? And I mean, like, do you really pray? Has the reality of Psalm 2 and Acts 4 and all of the rest of the Bible that Jesus Christ really is is risen from the dead, seated at God's right hand, and is ruling over the entire cosmos, has that really gripped your heart, believer? Has it filled you with an expectancy that drips off the words of the apostles and the disciples here? Is it the same type of hope? Did they believe that God would answer their prayer? It certainly seems to be the case. You know, there's a, a story um, about Charles Spurgeon that I, that I love. A fellow minister came up to Charles Spurgeon. Uh, he's a, if you don't know, Spurgeon was a pastor in uh, the 1800s and, um, and uh, just one prince of preachers is what he's been called. And so, fellow minister came up to Spurgeon one afternoon and, and, and he said, Pastor, I need some help. I need some advice. I've been 
preaching at my church for a while, in the last several months, last three or four months, no one has been converted. No one has been saved. And Spurgeon says, well, do you expect God to save someone every time you preach? And, of course, the man replied, well, no, obviously not. And Spurgeon looked at him and said, brother, that is your problem. Do we believe that God right now would come and save sinners? That He would come and dwell with us and meet with us? That you would leave here today having met with God? When you need something, when you need help, when you just can't keep going, do you believe that God is listening You know, the disciples were so enamored by the sovereignty of God, particularly in the the work of redemption, whereby He sets His anointed King, His dead but then raised to life conquering King, He sets Him as the door and passageway into God's very presence. They think about this in their first impulse when Peter and John get back is to pray. And to ask God to help them stay the course. How tempting might it have been for them to say, this is, too, this is too much. There's too much going on. I'm out. But they don't. They ask God for help. So I want to challenge us a bit here, particularly as it concerns prayer. Right? So there's different ways, times, and places in which you can pray. So do you pray individually? Are you... Are you in the prayer closet often communing with God, asking for help, enjoying His presence? Are you praying with your family regularly? Are we praying together corporately as a church? You know, every Sunday morning, several of us meet in the parking lot, or not in the parking lot, in the building across the parking lot to pray for 20 minutes 9 a.m. to 9.20 a.m. We also meet the second Sunday of every month, which happens to be today, to pray from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Now, there are obviously legitimate reasons for not coming to these meetings regularly. Things happen. They come up. And I'll leave all that. And I'm thinking especially of the members of our church here. I'll leave it between you and God if you haven't come to those. But I would ask you to ask yourself, would it Would you, would your family, would this church, this community and beyond be better off if you spent, regularly spent, concerted time, not just on your own, not just in the walls of your home, but with your church family praying, calling upon Christ in desperation and in hope, trusting the sovereign Lord who made the world and has revealed himself to the world and has overcome the world. To ask Him to bless us and to save sinners. You know, I'm convinced that if strangers were to spend any time around Redeemer Baptist Church, and then if they were asked to describe our church, I'm, I'm sure and certain that they would describe us as being committed to the Bible, committed to Scripture. But would they describe us as readily committed to prayer? I, I hope so. 
But I think we, we may have some growing to do in this area. Though I do want to note how very encouraged I have been by the growth that we have experienced in this area over the past couple of years. And so, church, let us, like the early disciples here, fill our hearts with God's Word. And may it overflow from our hearts, through our lips, in prayer, seeking God's help to continue to carry out our mission in the world for His glory and for the joy of the nations. Christ is risen, and we have a message to proclaim. And I pray that we would do so with zeal, with love, with humility and grace. Amen. Well, now, for all who are